from the University of Texas at Austin, KUT Radio. This is In Black America. At least three other women, black women I know, who are writing about Lorraine Hansberry. Mm -hmm. And they're all wonderful and brilliant, and I'm really looking forward to their work. And I wanted to write in a way that didn't, I wanted to like say, okay, well, what is it that I in particular have to share about her story? And also there being space for the brilliance that they have to share. And so for me, I knew that one of the things when I, when I looked at her work, um, it's hard to explain, but I could tell what she was reading based upon things that she wrote. Mm-hmm. And okay. like sort of in, in part because we, I, I read a lot of the same things that she read and we had a very similar kind of relationship to reading. And so I was like, oh, like I can really talk about, you know, who she, as I'm, I'm unfolding the story of her life, like what's she thinking about? What's she exploring? Like that's going to be my gift. Dr. Monty Perry, the Hughes Rogers Professor of African American Studies at Princeton University, and author of Looking for Lorraine, The Radiant and Radical Life of Lorraine Hansberry, published by Beacon Press. In 1959, when A Raisin in the Sun debuted on Broadway, Lorraine Hansberry became the first African American woman to have a play produced on Broadway. The play depicted an African American family's struggle on Chicago's South Side as it tried to move into a white neighborhood. Surprisingly, the play mirrors some of the circumstances Hansberry grew up under while living on Chicago's South Side. In her book, Looking for Lorraine, Perry uncovers the woman behind this iconic production. Hansberry, who died at the age of 34, was by all accounts ahead of her time. She was a feminist, a black nationalist, and a prolific and probing artist. I'm Johnny L. Henson, Jr., and welcome to another edition of In Black America. On this week's program, Looking for Lorraine, The Radiant and Radical Life of Lorraine Hansberry, with author Dr. Amani Perry, In Black America. I think the easiest answer is that, you know, she's one of the most important writers and thinkers of the 20th century. And so her picture comes out up in, you know, on Black History Month, but we tend not to know a lot about her life. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we see the movies, the play, whatever, you know, but we, and so I think it, it's always useful to look to the past and to, to sort of see what visionaries of the past, how they approached doing work that had a serious impact on people, that helped people imagine freedom, because we have to continue to do that work. So I guess that's part of it. But it's also, you know, the book was an occasion for me to think about, like, how communities create artists and thinkers, you know? Mm -hmm. And so writing about her and her interior life and her thinking, but also these people who shaped her and influenced her and the relationships. And I think nowadays we tend to be so kind of self-focused and so, like, everybody holds things close to their chest and they're competing (laughs) with each other. But we have, you know, you don't get to that kind of work unless you're in community, unless you're in conversation, unless you learn from other people. And so I guess I want that to be the lesson of her life, too. Unless you've been living under a rock for the past six decades, you know about A Raisin in the Sun. The Broadway production opened at the Ethel Barrymore Theater on Broadway in 1959. It was made more famous when the movie version was released a year later. Starring Sidney Poitier as Walter Lee Young and Ruby Dee as his wife. Lorraine Hansberry was only 29 years old when the production opened. 
Hansberry play is one of the most produced works by an African-American playwright in this country. Dr. Imani Perry thought it was time to revisit this literary jewel that has been hidden in plain sight for decades. Although Hansberry life was short, it was full of extraordinary experiences and achievements. She had an unflinching commitment to social justice, which brought her under FBI surveillance when she was barely in her 20s. Perry's book brought to life the backstage stories of this multidimensional artist and playwright. Recently in Black America spoke with noted African-American studies scholar, Dr. Amani Perry. I was born in Alabama, and I always say that's home because I learned to walk, talk, and read there and dance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then moved first to Milwaukee, then to Massachusetts, and went home to Alabama for the summers and to Chicago. So I sort of had this multi-regional experience. What's funny about it is that, you know, people often just think of Birmingham in the past in terms of like 1963. Right. And so, you know, people always assume that Massachusetts was like the sort of, you know, liberal playground and Birmingham was, was, was dangerous and difficult for black people. But actually, you know, I was born in 1972. So by the time I grew up, Birmingham was really a black city. And Boston was just in the throes when I got there. They had just finished the busing crisis. So mm-hmm. Boston was the place that felt racist and dangerous. Uh, and Birmingham was the place that felt very nurturing, like, you know, you know, just a really strong sense of community, connection with people, long history of striving, of black culture, institutions. You know, it was and is, you know, it, it when I say the word home, I really mean it in the large sense. I felt embraced by, by that city. Were you there when Richard Arrington was the mayor? I did not. I mean, I was there, you know, in the summers when he was the mayor, but my parents worked with him at Miles College. Yeah. So I knew um, I knew the Arringtons growing up. Yeah. Which was I mean, and he was an extraordinary mayor because, you know, most cities, the impact of deindustrialization was devastating for black folks. But in Birmingham, when the steel mills closed down, he really brought in the hospital industry. So he was able to as a black mayor to actually allow the city to remain um, financially stable and robust for right. a much longer period of time than lots of places. Right. What were some of your favorite subjects while you were in high school? Oh, gosh. Well, I, I loved math, interestingly enough, and I started college thinking I was going to be a math major. But I also loved uh, English. Um, mm-hmm. I, was, I, I was a voracious reader. It's part of how I identified with Lorraine Hansberry. You know, I just, I loved to read. Um, I didn't know that I wanted to actually study literature, but you know, I love to read and write. So when I realized that, that math wasn't actually what I wanted to do at the end of my freshman year of college, I, I moved in that direction instead. How did you go about selecting Yale for your undergraduate? Well, sort of funny. <laughs> um, I applied to lots of colleges. At the end, I was choosing between Amherst College, Spelman College, and Yale. And Amherst, I, I had been mentored by a member of the, the uh, what was called a5, which was the African-American Amherst Alumni Association. And so I knew all these black Amherst grads. So that was part of why I was interested in Amherst and in Spelman for obvious reasons. And actually, when I visited Yale, I, 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 didn't, I wasn't interested. And my parents said, we just want you to apply. You don't have to go, but mm-hmm. we want you to apply. And I didn't know that New Haven was a black city. <laughs> so <laughs> I went to visit and I was like, wait, I can take all these things that I you know, explore all these things I want to study 
and live in a black city and also be in, in an institution that has this strong history, you know, from the Panther trials to the history of black studies there. And so oddly enough, it was actually the history of black Yale that brought me there as opposed to just the status of the university. When you decided to major in American studies and literature, was that your first choice? I started with math and, um, it didn't click for me there. It mm-hmm. wasn't a real, you know, it's a pro- I mean, I, I had always been very good at math and I was interested in being a mathematician, but it wasn't a program where I really felt like I had contact with faculty and was being mentored. And then we had this thing at Yale called shopping period where you can look, look around courses for two weeks. Mm-hmm. And so this, this guy at lunch, um, Ron Llewellyn was his name. He said, come with me to this class, American studies. And I was like, what's that? And he was like, I don't know. It's, you know, it's American stuff. <laughs> so I went with him to shop it. And the professor was talking about the, the way that African rice cultivation practices from the Senegambia region had been brought to South Carolina and these black farmers who were enslaved were actually resp- all their knowledge of rice cultivation was responsible for developing the wealth of South Carolina. Mm-hmm. And I was blown away because I had never heard anything about this. You know, I had I was a kid who like loved to read black literature and watch documentaries, and I had no idea about any of this. And so right. that was the hook <laughs> for mm-hmm. me. You know, mm-hmm. it's like I'm going to learn something um, that I had, you know, that I didn't even know that I wanted to learn. You know. You had your Ph.D. in American Civilization from Harvard. When one obtains a Ph.D. in American Civilization, what is it? The program is really, they've changed the name to American Studies. It's Mm -hmm. sort of a combination of cultural history, you know, like a traditional history curriculum, but also looking at things, not just sort of major events, but like how cultures change, and some intellectual history, and then also literature. So for me... I was always more inclined to literature than history for a long time, but I could combine those things, you know. And so that was a program, and um, it was also a period of a lot of growth of the department in terms of sort of, you know, a growing number of faculty members who were particularly focused on race in American history, so, and that culture was, and stuff. Yeah, <laughs> that was going to be my next question. Are we included in that curriculum? Yes. Uh, so my so my uh, my committee when I took my general examinations was you know Henry Louis Gates Jr. Cornell West okay Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. and then I had and I I studied with Judge A. Leon Higginbotham you know okay who, yeah so and for your listeners you know one of the the most important black federal court judges right. who joined the faculty there so. So, yes, <laughs> we were in that mm-hmm. curriculum. And what led you to obtain a law degree? I was trying, you know, I had I had studied all this, you know, literature and like different kind of cultural movements. But I was trying to figure out like the way the world worked. I was trying to figure out how and the society and the way the power worked. And so I was like, well, I guess that means either law or economics, you know, to just see how like how was power working. And so mm-hmm. I was curious about the law. And then part of the inspiration was also, um, you remember when, um, you know, Bill Clinton nominated Lonnie Guineer for attorney general and then Mm -hmm. took it back. And how, you know, the news talked so bad about her, you know, talked about she was terrible and talked about how she looked. And 
And I actually was like, wow, this black woman has made these people so mad with articles (laughs) she's written. I want to do that. You know, I wanted to shake things up in that way. So I was inspired in part to go to law school because of who she was as um, as a legal scholar. And then later I was able to study with her. But you know, to just really try to challenge the way things were. So I wanted to know, you know, how power worked, but I also wanted to see, is there a way to think about law that could really challenge inequality and injustice? When you decided to write about Lorraine Hansberry, was it a kindred spirit thing since she was born and raised in Chicago, such as yourself? I mean, so there was, a. I mean, I think the kindred spirit thing was, you know, so... So even though I was born down south, I, I migrated, and mm-hmm. she was very much a child of migration, right? right. And that, and that definitely was a, I was a, felt like she was a kindred spirit in that way. Mm-hmm. And then also, you know, her politics. You know, I was raised on the far left. I identify myself as a member <laughs> of the far left. And, you know, here was someone who was very passionate about her politics, very had very strong convictions, and was able to produce work that resonated broadly. You know, she could she could write in a way that didn't sort of push people off the ideas but brought them in. I thought that, you know, that and then she was she just wanted to kind of know everything and learn everything and she was sort of all over the place and that felt very familiar <laughs> to me, you know. Mm-hmm. I liked that about her. I liked that she was both you know, she was just an incredibly hard worker, but also someone who had self, moments of self-doubt, you know, one, you know, kind of could be self She was just so fully human. And I, I like when we can take figures from history who are right. icons, but then treat them like full human beings. I think that's important, you know, for us moving forward to be able to see them as complete people. So that was all part of it. When you decided to undertake this project how long did it take and was there enough information out there for you to really uh, do her justice with this book there was definitely enough information she has a vast archive and i you know it it wasn't widely available until pretty recently mm-hmm. so it's hard to answer how long it took me to write the book because i guess i i really started diligently in in 2015. Okay. But I had been doing research on her for years before, you know, and reading her articles in Freedom newspaper and like collecting and you know just collecting information as well as reading all of her her writings multiple times. So right. it's sort of like a project that was percolating for a long time and then I really got into it about 3 years ago. Now we can probably have a half hour conversation on the first two chapters but we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna <laughs> skip around was it difficult and correct me I know you're gonna correct me if I'm wrong but uh-huh. you make an analysis while you writing her story of what she had written in the past along yes. with you, along with your yes. dad was that a obviously there must have been a conscious effort on your part why was that necessary for you to do well I thought you know, so I'll, let me just say, you know, there are at least three other women, black women I know, who are writing about Lorraine Hansberry. Mm-hmm. And they're all wonderful and brilliant, and I'm really looking forward to their work. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to write in a way that didn't, I wanted to like say, okay, well, what is it that I in particular have to yeah. share about her story? Mm-hmm. And also there being space for the brilliance that they have to share. 
And so for me, I knew that one of the things when I when I looked at her work, um, it's hard to explain, but I could tell where she was reading based upon things that she wrote, mm-hmm. and okay. like sort of in, in part because we. I, I read a lot of the same things that she read, and we had a very similar kind of relationship to reading. And so I was like, oh, like I can really talk about, you know, who she, as I'm, I'm unfolding the story of her life, like what's she thinking about? What's she exploring? Like that's going to be my gift, you know, whereas one of the, one of the people who are theater scholars, they're going to say amazing things about how the productions were put together, right? Like how she made choices about actors. And so that's, that wasn't my, that was not my strength. And so, so it was a conscious decision. It wasn't hard partially because the archives are so beautifully put together. Like the archivists have done a great job. So you could sit down with, I could sit down and say, okay, I just want to spend, you know, these two weeks focusing on Hansberry in 1957, right? And like move through her year, mm-hmm. her diary, her calendar, what she's writing, and then what happens in her life in that year, mm-hmm. you know? So I was, you know, there's all these other people who are involved in the process beyond the writer, you know, the people who put together the archives, who make sense of her, you know, who really organized her life before I wrote about it. If you're just joining us, I'm Johnny O'Hanson Jr., and you're listening to In Black America from KUT Radio, and we're speaking with Dr. Imani Perry the Hughes Rogers Professor of African American Studies at Princeton University and author of Looking for Lorraine, The Radiant and Radical Life of Lorraine Hansberry. Lorraine came from somewhat, we can say, a privileged class of African Americans. Her parents were college educated. They were. They were college educated. She, Her father was a real estate mogul. You know, Her mother was involved in um, local politics. And, all the, and, and, you know, people who... I've talked to or, you know, had interviews with who grew up around her, you know, they were seen not, I mean, they were, they were middle class, but for, for black folks in the depression, they were rich, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> so they talked about that, you know, the, the Hansberries had money. So that's what she came from, but they lived on the South side and oftentimes lived in the same building as her father's tenants. So she wasn't separate from the larger black community, you know, she came of age right in the middle of it. At some point, Lorraine became compassionate about the conditions of, of, of African Americans during her time. What mm-hmm. led her to that, that that point in her life? That's a great question. I mean, I think it's it, there are a couple of events that were really important. Mm-hmm. I think one is, you know, her, her uncle, um, William Leo Hansberry, who was a professor at Howard. Right you know, found, you know, really developed the field of African studies, he brought a lot of intellectuals and activists by their house, and that had an influence on her, you know, so sort of thinking about black politics more broadly. And, of course, like, you know, the Chicago Defender, they're reading that, you know, all the time. And so, you know, there's like a whole kind of political world. And she had a mentor who lived downstairs at one point who uh, was an activist who's um, Ray Hansborough, no relation, and mm-hmm. though they have a similar last name. But then, the, but personally, I, I think the most poignant event was when she was in elementary school and her parents gave her a white fur coat the for fur Christmas. Coat. Right, right. And she goes to school in that fur coat in the Depression where other kids are hungry mm-hmm. and, you know, and they beat her up. Right. And in that moment, she she talks about sharing their anger. Like she 
she understood how awful it was. Mm-hmm. And as opposed to just focusing on feeling like, why did they, you know, hurt, right? And she identified with the other kids in that moment. And I think that that was the moment really that kind of gave her her politics, gave her her commitments, where she could see outside of her own experience to the larger black community's experience. As you say that, I'm I'm thinking about when she decided to attend the University of Wisconsin at Madison, uh-huh. which was, uh, you know, 180 from, from yes. where she grew up in, and, and having that experience with the coat and having to go to Madison. I've been to Madison, I'm quite sure you <laughs> yeah. have. It's not a lot of stuff that black people can do in Madison, Wisconsin. No. <laughs> No, and it's it's and that and you know she integrated a dorm like they right. previous black students had been forced to live off campus and you know her mother was like no we need and and they made her interview for that exactly. like for them to decide it was acceptable to have a, a black young woman in the dorm so yeah it was totally different and one thing that I think is amazing about her is that she 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 struggled academically there she was mm-hmm. not really into school that much. I mean, that's just, you know, not into the the academic part of school, but she flourished in terms of the, what she did, you know, Mm -hmm. she became a campus activist, the president of the the student progressive party, you know, she got into theater productions. And so, and she did, you know, uh, you know, she talked about, about race and racism there. She didn't stay, but I'm just, I was really um, impressed by how she sort of not just, you know, met the challenge of being there, but became a leader amongst, you know, white students in 1948. Right. You know, it's really extraordinary. I think uh, I think she found her her way. She became an artist, but becoming an artist also took her to becoming a proficient writer which she didn't really take real seriously at the beginning. Yeah, you know, it's so I I she be yeah, I think that's right. You know, she was she started as a visual artist. Right. And I you know, I think even, it, she never lost track of the visual. I mean, I think part of what's so special about playwrights is they are paying attention to the words, but they're also thinking about the visual, like the performance mm-hmm. in front of you. Mm-hmm. And she did these I think she was she was very self-critical about her own plays, but I think she was really masterful at like putting together plays where you could see the motivation and the feelings of all the characters and identify with all of them. You could feel what they were feeling even when they were at odds with each other. Yet she didn't like it it all felt very natural. Like she you would you didn't think, oh, that's not what a real person would say, right? So they would talk like people really talked, and yet you got a full sense of who they were. And I do think that helped. It helped that she was imagining scenes, you know, interactions, uh, not just sort of telling a story but showing a story. Who were some of the writers that had a profound impact on her as a writer? Well, definitely Langston Hughes, Mm -hmm. Simone de Beauvoir, um, for playwright Sean O'Casey, Du Bois had an influence on her intellectually, and she studied his writing a right. lot. Um, and he, you know, was a mentor, really, you know, cared very deeply for her. And she does, you know, what's so funny, she doesn't talk about Gwendolyn Brooks, but I think Gwendolyn Brooks was absolutely an influence on her. So I think 
in the way that she tried to depict life in Chicago and 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 Chicago kitchenette living I just you know she didn't she never acknowledged it explicitly but I just as someone who who loves and reads a lot of Gwendolyn Brooks I just see her influence on Hansberry I found it interesting after the African airlift her uh, friendship with Malcolm X yes yeah I mean she knew everybody you know and she and I I think it's really important because so many people don't think of her as militant but right. really, she was as militant. <laughs> yes, she was. As as, uh, as Malcolm and and also the visual, because you know he talked bad about her about her being married to a white man, and then she like you know fussed at him, mm-hmm. and he apologized. And I have this visual in my mind because you know she was this little <laughs> tiny woman, and Malcolm right. was like six three and imposing. And I just imagine her, you know, <laughs> fussing at him, and he's like, "Okay, I'm sorry, Lorraine." You know, I just it's it's just such a sweet image, and I was so moved when I read about him showing up at her funeral, even though his own life was at risk, I just wept, you know, at that, you know, that moment. Do you think her father's death in Mexico had a impact on her when she wrote The Raised in the Sun? I do. I think, um, I think one, the impact on her was that, it's sort of a it's it's complicated. I think on the one hand it made her more tender to her father's position. Like mm-hmm. you know, even though she didn't see things the same way, like he was very much into, you know, we got to fight the battle in the courts and we have to be respectable. You know, he was a very, you know, real patriot, like straight and narrow guy and she was talking about, you know, we should run to the hills with guns. <laughs> you know, they were very different. But I think she saw his life and she saw how brilliant he was and how hard he worked and that at the end of his life, he was so frustrated by American racism. He was like, we're just going to go to Mexico. We're leaving this place. And I think that, I mean, that really shaped her, you know, the feeling right. that like, he, you know, he had done everything according to white America the right way for getting equality. And he just saw it as intractable, you know, the country. So I think that had an impact on her, and I think it opened her up to really thinking about, even though she had very strong convictions, kind of being sensitive to all the different ways that black people were trying to struggle, you know, even if they weren't the same as her own. I found it interesting this week when they had just did a report on the devaluation of black home ownership, mm-hmm. and her dad a lot of people don't know was the reason why the restrictive covenants was stricken. Yeah, well, and it 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 was, you know, yeah, I mean, Hansberry v. Lee, the case that her dad brought when he purchased a home in a neighborhood that was supposed to be restricted for white folks, the case went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and they, you know, ultimately were able to occupy the home and you know, that history, and the thing is that, you know, Raising the Sun is based on that history in part, right. and part of her frustration with the way people saw the play was she mm. was like, at the end, when they move into the house, that's not a happy ending. Exactly. Because the white folks are going to be, you know, so violent. You know, she talked mm-hmm. about being spat on. Dr. Imani Perry, the Hughes Rogers Professor of African American Studies at Princeton University, and author of Looking for Lorraine, The Radiant and Radical Life of Lorraine Hasbury. We will conclude our conversation on next week's program. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions as to future In Black America programs, 
Email us at inblackamerica at kut.org. Also, let us know what radio station you heard is over. Remember to like us on Facebook and to follow us on Twitter. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station or of the University of Texas at Austin. You can hear previous programs online at kut.org. Until we have the opportunity again for technical producer David Alvarez, I'm John L. Hansen, Jr. Thank you for joining us today. Please join us again next week. CD copies of this program are available and may be purchased by writing In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 300 West Dean Keaton Boulevard, Austin, Texas, 78712. That's In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 300 West Dean Keaton Boulevard, Austin, Texas, 78712. This has been a production of KUT Radio.